0: Hey, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller podcast. We have a really good episode for you today. We're going to do a continuation of our best of 2023 celebration. Before we get into that, I want to let you know we're doing a giveaway on my Instagram. I'll be choosing two winners by tomorrow to win an espresso machine because I love an espresso coffee. This is not sponsored. They did not sponsor me to do this. I just cannot start the day without going downstairs and having a cup of coffee. So I put up a giveaway on my Instagram. It's a little post that talks about coffee in the morning. And then if you read in the details, it asks that you just go ahead and um, refer the podcast to somebody. And by celebrating the podcast, we will uh, have you entered into the giveaway and we'll choose two of you. So if you go to my Instagram at kathy.heller, then you can enter that giveaway. So today we're going to share part two of our favorite moments of the year. We're going to start with this powerful insight from Arthur Brooks about what it really means to practice self-care. Take a listen.
1: Now, the key thing is that a lot of things that we want to do are either too meta, like I want to be happy.
0: Right, right.
1: (laughs) Or they're the kind of thing where they're wrong direction, like self-care is generally speaking going in the wrong direction is the way that Mm -hmm. that works. And the reason is just because other care is better than self-care for actually being a happier person.
0: That's so fascinating. And I've never heard that. And I love that other care is probably going to get you there faster than self.
1: Yeah. 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 So that's the one thing that I recommend that everybody do. If you want to feel better today, that's really counterintuitive. It's not trying to solve all the problems in the world. And it's not going in exactly the wrong direction. It's actually figure out something to do. That's an just a completely unprovoked kindness for somebody else. Like if you're like bum and at work, you feel like just a drone at work. Like I could just not do this and nobody would even notice. Get up, go get a cup of coffee and bring it to the person in the next cubicle.
0: Oh my God, that is so good. That's and, like, so t-
1: and this is like, your brain is going to work differently, by the way. Your brain is going to work differently as a result of this, but it has cosmic significance to it because remember, I mean, this is an ancient, Hebrew saying that each person is the whole world, yeah. right? Like we Christians, we just borrowed it from your guys, you guys. We're right? all a
0: family. It's I one freaking family, yeah.
1: You know, we say that we Christians, we say that we're a, a minor Nazarene sect of Judaism. So that, Of course, of you course know. you are. And that is remembering that the whole world is in each person and each, you know, eternity is encapsulated in each moment. And fold everything up into the moment of just unprovoked kindness and love for somebody in that particular moment for no particular reason and that absurd little act suddenly can be a game changer and everybody can actually do that and they can do it in each day as as, as you know that's by the way the ultimate self care the ultimate self care is not like dark chocolate and then a sauna or you know whatever <laughs> it's a lemons or, or lavender scented candles. I don't know. I, don't know. I mean, I was like all ca- a bubble bath. I don't know. It's that, I mean, this is the magic.
0: It's amazing. I'll never forget this. I was, uh, I was walking to my doctor's office and there was a period of time where I was going to the same doctor quite often because I was going to fertility treatment. And so I was just parking in the same lot, walking down the same block. And so there was a homeless guy who was always there in front of this one place where I would always in this parking structure and I would remember that. And he had this really beautiful energy. And so I really liked giving him money. It was like just a really fun thing to engage with this guy. And so one day he wasn't there when I was on my way to the doctor. But when I was on my way back, it started to rain and he was there and he was outside. And I was like looking to scoot in so quickly to the door so I could run up the stairs and get to my car because it was raining out. But I saw him. And so I look in my bag and all I have is like a $10 bill. So I thought for, I'm going to be honest, I thought for a second, like, do I give him a $10 bill? I usually give him like a buck. And I was like, I'll give it to him. I'll give it to him. So I walk over and I hand it to him and he says, thank you. He goes, you are a miracle. He would tell everybody they were a miracle. Is this a sweet guy? So I go inside real fast and I'm walking up the steps and there's a glass. The whole way up the stairs, it's glass. so You can see out to the street. And I no joke, I must be in the staircase for 11 seconds. And I look out the window and I could see this guy out the window and he's shouting to everybody, you're a miracle, you're a miracle. And another man who looked as though he was also homeless, who was walking on crutches, he walks by this man and this man hands him the $10 bill I just gave him. And he goes, brother, you're a miracle. God bless you. And I broke into tears and I'll never forget it. And I thought, oh my gosh, to me, that $10 was like not really a thing. To him, that $10 looks like it was kind of a thing and he gave it away. And I was like, oh, who's richer, me or him?
1: Yeah, no, the gift is in the giving. It's incredible. There's one way, by the way, because you know a lot of people are listening to us. They see a lot of people who are homeless and they feel kind of helpless about that. And And there's one thing that you can do that can take it actually into the stratosphere. There's one more thing that you can actually do. And the one thing that's a true gift to everybody, everybody is to be needed. That's what everybody needs. And we have a whole class of the population: you know, poor people, people at the margins of society. And the the horrible thing is that they're liabilities to manage, and the human dignity that that actually sacrifices. So one thing that we can do, you know, so you see the homeless guy in the street, and what do you need from him? And I think I know. I think you need his prayers. Because God hears the prayers of the poor, right? You need him to pray for you and your family. You need him to pray for your daughters. He needs a little money. You need his prayers. And then we're cosmically in union. Then we're truly one.
0: All right, now we're going to hear from one of the most genuine human beings of all, Jason Mraz. It was such a joy to have him back on the podcast. And I got to spend time with him in person recently, which was really fun. He is so vulnerable in this conversation. And I felt like this was a really special moment. Check this out. People think on some level when they're in their 40s, like there's no more getting started. Like that's Mm -hmm. over. And then I feel like I was taking a hike today and I'm making a decision about some things. And I realized, oh my gosh, the reason it's hard for me to make this decision is because my avatar has completely changed itself and I'm getting started on a totally new vision. So I can't make a decision from the old me because I'm actually a completely new, it's brand new now. Like it's a whole new getting started. And I just wanted you to talk about that a little bit in that song and what that means to you. Cause I feel like at this point in life, it's like, no, no, dust off the shoes, like there's a lot to get started with. And I feel like people think that that's kind of passed them by. So tell us about that song and how that might give us a little bit of uh momentum.
2: Mm, I love that. I love the way you described it. Yeah. The song getting started. Most songs kind of start, they start in a, with a blank page in a way they start in doubt. They start in kind of a nothing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And there has to be a certain amount of you that believes in something to make it become something. And to be eight albums in, to be mid forties, to be chasing dance music, there's, <laughs> Every now and then it's really easy to say, this is ridiculous. You know, who am I? How can I do this? Blah, blah, blah. So there's a good amount of doubt that comes in with it. So the work in writing this song was overcoming those doubts and and understanding like there's still so much that I've yet to experience that I know I can because I've done this before. I've done it again and again and again. I know I can do it again and I know I can do it anew. It was mostly, for me, the age thing. You know, I'll, I'll tell you this, and it's something I, I don't usually talk about, um, but my marriage didn't survive from the dream that it once was. And that was probably tied up in going all the way back to my parents' divorce. You know, I spent my whole life chasing what my parents didn't have. You know, I'm going to have it. You watch me. I'm going to get it. And so I went about that with maybe misguided intentions or something. So when I got into the marriage, it was like, it felt like a trophy, but it didn't feel like it was fully realized, the partnership. Yeah. And had a lot of regrets, had a lot of embarrassment. Um, you know, had to, I still feel like I'm asking forgiveness for the error that I made in judgment. Right. And. Looking back at my partnership, it's like, oh, this person was so great. Like, had I just had a little more therapy or consciousness prior to the marriage, then we we probably would have ended up being, you know, business partners or colleagues and stayed together forever in in that capacity. But because, because I drove, I I was really driving the marriage thing hard, it kind of derailed our truth, maybe. So that's a big secret behind this record is, is being okay with that, you know, being on the other side of a divorce and starting over. Like, what am I doing now? And it's, there's a lot of freedom in it because I'm not seeking relationship for the first time in my life. I'm not seeking someone else to validate me or to, I'm not seeking a partner to show the world that I'm lovable or that I can be love in my personal life. It was scary at first.
0: I oh, um, can't even imagine. Ooh.
2: But I feel really fulfilled and I real, I still feel whole and complete, which I, I love. So getting started, that's the real answer to that song. Is I'm starting over in a way, but or maybe I'm not starting over. Maybe I'm just starting for the first time. You know, maybe I'm not redoing anything. I'm taking off and in that I get to discover so many things about myself that have always been hidden from my view. Wow. You know, I grew up in a community that wasn't very open to the LGBTQ community. And so therefore I hid any type of attraction. I hid any type of bi curiousness. I just hid all that suppressed it, you know, and that wouldn't be revealed until much later in my life. And that's part of getting started. it's like, where am I going next? Who am I? You know, what? what capacity do I really have to love? I mean, so if I look at my career, that's all love-based. A lot of it is really trying to find answers for myself. You know, it's like, who am I in love? And some of it might be overcompensating for love that's still lacking in my life. But some of it is just trying to hopefully fill in the blanks. But I'm, I'm okay with it where it's at now and I'm just getting started. So I feel brand new.
0: Another beautiful singer-songwriter that we chatted with this year is Nora Jones. It was so interesting to hear the behind the scenes of what she really was feeling and thinking as her album was becoming such a massive success.
4: Well, I played a lot of gigs, you know, small restaurant gigs mostly or small clubs, but not a ton of club shows. Like it was, I really worked out my stuff doing a lot of restaurant gigs in Dallas and then in New York. I was in a couple different bands and they were fine, but that wasn't like what I wanted to do. You know, I was this hired singer to be in these bands, sure. but I wasn't necessarily singing my own music, but I ended up meeting someone in New York named Jesse Harris and he's a songwriter and um we became really good friends. And then I was joking around singing one of his songs one day and he really loved it. So he booked a singing at the living room and... We added a few of my bass player, Lee Alexander's songs, a couple of my songs, and a few covers, and, and some of Jesse's songs. And that's really the sort of seed for the album. And it ended up being mostly those that variety of songwriters and songs for the album. I got introduced to Bruce Lindvall at Blue Note Records because somebody saw one of my jazz gigs. And he liked me, so he gave me some money to like record some demos. But he could tell I wasn't sure what I was doing. And the first demo we recorded was Don't Know Why, which was Jesse's Stern. And many recording sessions later, not that many, not compared to like a pop record, but, you know, two different sessions later, we went back to that version of Don't Know Why. And that ended up being the version that was the hit of the record was the first demo we made <laughs> of it. So, you know, it really did feel right for most of the songs to be. In that spirit, it really helped inform like the rest of the record. Uh, not too like- overthought, you know, sweet arrangements, but not, not overcooked.
0: Yeah, it's so beautiful. And the work you, I mean, you've continued to put out such incredible albums that are all, you know, they take the listener away to a totally different place energetically. And I think what we all want is a change in frequency, you know, and I think your music. <laughs> Your music just changes the station that you're on vibrationally. Like, it's so beautiful. And my question is, since you offer that, right? You offer that level of resonance. How have you stayed resonant and congruent with what feels really good to you while being for years exposed to a machine of the world that sometimes is much more about ego? Like, how do you feel like you've stayed Feeling really good, like what good really feels like, and not being caught in what people expect, and you know the, the way in which our ego like ach- looks at achievement.
4: Well, with the first record, I was young, but I was surrounded by a lot of good friends and people I worked with, good people, family, etc. So that's part of it, right? You have to be around the right people. I also, um, with the success, of come away with me the record. It was so successful that there was a lot of haters. You know, there was a lot of like, why is this so successful? I don't like it. You know, oh my whenever gosh. something reaches that tipping point, then, you know, a lot of people write articles about like how it shouldn't be that successful or how it's not really that good. You know what I'm saying? I, I
0: actually, I do know, but I didn't actually know that that went down, but it's, it's fascinating. Well, but- no,
4: no, no. I mean, I'm just saying from my, my perspective, yeah, like, yeah. you know, when you're, when you're an artist, you hear a bunch of compliments and it makes you excited. You hear one negative thing oh, and it that devastates. for sure.
0: That for so, sure. So, I you know,
4: when something and also it was kind of the beginning of message boards. There wasn't social media yet, but there was chat rooms and all that stuff. So the online sort of opinions was circulating already. So I think I got very like shell shocked by the adulation slash She's not really that good or whatever it was that maybe a small percentage of people would say. And that's, again, you know, to each his own with music, right? But I think that really made me like not sure about myself for about five minutes. And then I kind of regrouped. We went into the studio and I realized that it didn't really matter. No matter what I'm going to do is going to be good or bad to some people. So I have to love it. And that's really all that matters. And that's, that's art. I mean, that's really the lesson with making art. I think any kind of art, unless you're being hired to do, uh, you know, something for someone else, (laughs) you have to love it yourself. Otherwise the criticisms will either be more hurtful or ring true or, you know, you can't predict what, what is going to be a success anymore or ever. (laughs) So you just have to make what you love. Absolutely. That's what I've done. And that's what I did for the second record. And that's what I've always done.
0: This year, we also had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Gladys McGarry, the 103 year old mother of holistic medicine. It was mind blowing to talk with someone who's lived through so many different eras of history. And I was fascinated by this piece that she said about childbirth and how it relates to the power of women. We do exactly what you just said we just outsource our adequacy, we outsource the knowledge somebody else knows better. And this is so crucial, right? The returning to the sanctuary within, the knower that knows, the part of us that's connected to God, the part of us that's connected to the divine answers. How do we walk ourselves back home to that?
5: Well, let me tell you, build up to that question. I am so concerned about what we've done to birthing and what we've done to our womanhood by telling ourselves that we have to have someone else deliver our babies. Hmm, that's wrong. I keep finding myself saying something like, well, I delivered so that... No, the mothers birth babies. We help them birth babies. I'm thrilled to be able to help mothers birth babies. But we have completely robbed women. Of the essence, the very essence of their power, which is birthing a baby. And we haven't just injured that. We've damaged it really deeply. And enough so that I have to catch myself not to say I delivered such and such a baby. It's the mother's privilege and responsibility, but she's the only one that can do it.
0: It's so fascinating, you know, I have three daughters, thank God, and uh when I had my first daughter, I remember having been told by a friend that if you ask the nurse in the labor and delivery room, they can put these bars on the bed that you can hold on to and you can squat. And I remembered when I got into the labor and delivery room and it was it wasn't coming along quickly, and I said to the nurse, Hey, isn't there a way where you can put some bar on this bed so I can actually be in a position to squat? And my husband and the nurse said to me, what are you talking about? Nobody does that. Very few people do that. That takes a tremendous amount of strength. Just go with what we're saying. And I said, no, I want to try it. And sure enough, there I was. The bed kind of moves into this other kind of position so that you're now, you're in the bed, but the bed now has like a bottom part and these yeah. squat bars go on. And, and what happened? I delivered the baby because Absolutely. I had, I could do it because I was empowered because I was on my feet and I w- I've never felt so strong. I could cry just thinking about it. I named my daughter Gabrielle, which means God is my strength because I felt stronger than they told me that I was. Yeah. And that experience gave me so much. And I can't believe that I have to ask and beg versus laying backwards in a position where I have no op- oh. agency yeah. over my body. And you're so right. And nobody talks about this.
5: No, no. And when I started medical school in 41 in September and World War II started in December. All right. All through that, we were learning about birthing babies and so on. But, but the whole thought form at that time was the basis of what we're still working with. And that was to relieve Women of pain during childbirth. It was called, you know, this awful amount of anesthesia. I had my first two in that condition. I didn't know that my first son was a boy until 24 hours afterwards. And in medical school, we were taught how to use forceps. Because you see, if the woman is totally anesthetized she can't push the baby out so how are you going to get the baby out well i got to be real good at that i could even help a mother with an aftercoming head it was a technique that you learned and it was all on the basis of trying to help the mother so that she didn't have any pain and nobody thought about anything else but that aspect of it. In fact, in the seventies I had a young person with me who was from the University of Cincinnati and we were going to the hospital for a birthing, and on the way home he said to me, That's the first spontaneous delivery I've seen without forceps. Without forceps in seventies. Mm-hmm. Now, I had my last two at home, but I created the baby buggy program and a lot of other things. Bob Bradley had written a book about a husband coach, childbirth, and so on and so forth. But the movement was there. And right now, my vision for the future of my life on this planet, I really, really want to have created a village for living medicine where the people who are there As workers, the people who are there living there, everybody understands the whole concept of we have this power within us. But you start out with the birthing and the birthing has to be a loving birth center, not just a delivery center. You know, we deliver pizzas, we deliver speeches, we don't deliver babies. So it's the loving birth center where The mother can do what she wants
0: to do, what she needs to do. One of my favorite conversations this year was with Dr. Lisa Miller. She led me through this beautiful visualization practice, and I want to specifically highlight the metaphor that she shared. Take a listen.
6: We all are born with this capacity, and it is a choice to practice, to engage, to pay attention, to choose to look into life this way. And the more we do it, the more it builds and takes on a life of itself. It pays us back a thousandfold and we can be there for others. So I, I'm wondering, should I tell a story or do you want to do a practice? What would be a better way to share this?
0: Maybe start with the practice because I feel like, you know, experience teaches on such a different level. Beautiful. I'll share this practice. Thank you. I invite
6: you and in our community, if you invitation to close your eyes, clear out your inner space with five breaths. I invite you to locate a time where you wanted something so badly. You had done everything. You researched it. You tactically lined it up. It could have been a job, an internship, an admission to a school. It could have been getting him or her or them to say yes, a place to live. You wanted it. That was your red door. A plus B plus C and 99% in the bag because you've done it all right. And you go right up to your red door. You grab the handle but it's stuck. And you perhaps can't believe it's stuck because you had done everything right. A plus B plus C, this impasse. You kick the door, it doesn't move. You're angry, maybe depressed. But only because it is stuck, you have no choice. You pivot. You pivot and you turn 20, 50, 170 degrees. A hairpin turn. And there is a radiant, wide open, yellow door. You might've said yellow doors don't exist. You've not heard of yellow doors. You cross the threshold and there is someone more right for you. There is a community where you feel alive and connected. There is a job or an internship that opens up a side of yourself you didn't know you even had. That yellow door led to a land that was not what you had wanted. It was better than what you had wanted and better for you. And as you step back and think about that stuck red door, the hairpin turn leading to the yellow door, there's so much to do with who you are and where you are today. Was there anyone there at the hairpin turn? Maybe someone you met for two minutes on the bus or at a party. Maybe there was someone you'd known for years, a dear friend, a grandparent who shared a story they'd never shared before. Someone pointed the way, gave you information to the yellow door. They were a trail angel, a trail angel helping you along the hairpin turn. And now as you step back, stuck red door, hairpin turn, trail angel to the wide open yellow door that has so much to do with who you are today. How really are the most important parts of our lives formed? Is it narrowly that we are makers of our paths? Is it only through tactics and strategy and goals set based on yesterday's information? Or are we less makers of our paths and at most important moments, discovers? Discovers of our journey where we meet people we didn't know existed. Because all the information, what I want on that red door is only based on today backwards. But the discovery of the yellow door and the synchronicity of the trail angel, that holds information that has yet to unfold before us. And so finally now, as you sit way back, stuck red door, hairpin turn, trail angel, synchronistically in your path, wide open yellow door, where in your right of life radiates your higher power, God. Is your higher power in the open yellow door and the stuck red door? Is your higher power in the trail angel and your openness to be in dialogue with this great sacred force in us, through us, and among us? And have you been on a spiritual path, a sacred walk all along,
0: in dialogue with our universe?
6: I invite you back.
0: Another guest this year who's just filled with wisdom is George Mumford. It was so inspiring to hear how much he went through to get his life to where it is today. And becoming the mindfulness coach for the NBA, the Lakers, the Bulls, it was just the cherry on the top. He really did become the hero of his own journey. He's such an example of how we have the power to choose who we want to be.
7: People are probably familiar with Joseph Campbell and the power of myth. And one of the things he says in the power of myth is... Where your pain is is where your life is. And so the hero's journey, it doesn't start with somebody giving you a lottery ticket or saying you just won, you know, book of the week or the megabucks or anything. It usually starts with some adversity and the ability to to say yes to the adversity and to learn from it is is what it's about. So this is about my journey It started out with substance abuse and chronic pain but it was really more about how to, like he said, how to lead a human life in a way where you can experience those moments of being fully alive, just fully engaged, fully deployed. Mm-hmm. And for the highest good, they're the greatest good. Some There's something about, and I was reading it in one of the books, I read a lot of books. And it talked about the altruism. You know, we're wired for that. But there's something, I think it was probably Out of the Impossible by Stephen Cutler. That there's something about saying yes to life, and then our latent abilities come out of that need, out of that difficulty, that challenge. And there's something about it when we access it and we realize, oh man, no matter what happens to me, I get to choose my response. I get to decide who I'm going to be, even if I can't control my circumstances like Victor Frankl talked about in a concentration camp, but I can control my mind. I can control what I what I focus on and how I choose to respond, for whatever it is, I can respond with grace and dignity and not lose myself no matter what.
0: I mean, that really is it, right? That is like the point of light on the spectrum of all that is, that is where we have free will.
3: Yeah. So I, I mean, good. what,
0: what you just said, I've never heard that. Although I've heard things like that, but I love how you said you quoted. Joseph Campbell saying, where your pain is, that's where your life is. That makes so much sense. And then when you sort of rattled off the things that you've lived through, I mean, those are such giant challenges. And I get on one level what you're saying, but like the humanity of being in it, in the thicket of all that stuff, and then still being able to rise to where you are Bring us to that moment in the movie. Like, what's that scene look like when you were able to overcome and choose into a much more healthy or elevated state of being? Yes,
7: so there's a lot of things that led up to it, but it it just came down to is one week I was active and when you're addicted to heroin and you're getting high multiple times a day, you're always running a fever. You're always having withdrawal symptoms till you get Mm -hmm. high and whatnot. And I'm running around and I was sick and I went to the doctors and they told me I had a strep infection. My temperature was like 105 or something. So I ended up in the hospital for a week. And while I was in the hospital, you know, it was really frustrating because they could see that I was a substance abuser because I had tracks all up and down my arms and they wouldn't give me any pain medicine and they had to cut into my arm. And they made me go three, four days without giving me anything. And then when I got ready to leave, they gave me a prescription for Percocet. You know, it's like they have no idea, nothing. And they say, if you keep doing that, you're going to die. But something happened and I had been going to AA since April. And that was late March. And then April 1st, my friend Danny, you know, I grew up with, I used to get high with, he came by my house and took me to a meeting on April 1st, 1984. And. I saw him and I was intrigued that, okay, he's, he's a dope thing like me and an alcohol, but he's clean. How'd that happen? And so when I was ready, because I had hit uh, one of those, we call it the elevator, you were in the penthouse and you're not quite to the sub basement, but you know, I just had a spiritual bottom where I couldn't stop and I couldn't keep going and going to AA was actually, and the 12 steps was actually getting to me. And then I got to the point where, yeah, I went to AA meetings and then, I got into a detox, so that was kind of the moment that I could see that there was a possibility to me. I didn't know what it was, but I knew if he did it, I got to check it out. And so that was one of the moments. But it's interesting because going to those twelve-step meetings and whatnot, I continued to, get, to drink and do things on the side. I mean, I was just, you know, it was one of those things where I had to get to a point where I could go into detox and not get sick. And so I got into detox, and I remember walking into the detox because it was close to my house. And at that time I had lost my car and I still had a job. I was lucky I was functional and I still had a house, but I didn't have much else. And so walking to the detox and then I could hear myself saying, you know, at the same joys that goes in comes out, we got a problem. You, you cannot come out the way you went in. You could have come out different. And I don't know how much of that is breathing or 12 steps and talking to people about it. But I knew that. And sure enough, when I got out of the detox, it was like I was seeing life on life's terms without substances, without hiding out in my fantasy world or whatever. I was seeing life on life's terms. And I feel like that's the first time I saw my street, saw my neighborhood. So I used to volunteer on the weekends and they'd have these workshops and they'd have like a Friday night talk and then they have a Saturday workshop. So one of the gentlemen that I had the pleasure of serving was Matthew Fox. And Matthew Fox, he was a Dominican priest, and he wrote a book called The Original Blessing. Hmm. And, uh, of course, he ended up getting censured, and I think he actually ended up leaving. But he also set up this university in California someplace that was like, I mean, it was really cool. Here he is up there, a Catholic priest, and we're doing Tai Chi on stage and, yeah. and stuff like that. But it, it's this idea of not realizing that we're so good as a community of having a PhD in in pathology, we can tell you when it happened, when it started. We're not so good at catching each other doing something right or focusing on the original blessing and coming from a place where you realize that you are wife for success. You have Buddha nature, Christ consciousness, Quan Yin, divine spark. You have the greatness within you. That if you embrace it, access it, it can transform not only your life but everybody else's life or community so it's this idea of just getting to that point right yeah you're a bad mofo you you know you watch the, you know, but you just don't know it you know it's like the when i was in the eighth grade this friend of mine he told me he said hey man you're a poet you know how i know it your feet show it the you know, it's like so you have Longfellow capability emerson the bella amherst emily dickinson there's so many, you know, we have the worldwide, but it's like you said, you buy a new Tesla and all you want to know is how to start it and how to stop it and how to go someplace. But you're not interested in reading the manual so you can use the full capacity of right. like the vehicle and all the smart technology and whatnot. We tend to say, well, we, we ain't trying to go there. We just want to get the A and B and we don't we just need the basic fundamentals, but we don't really want to understand it. So we can get the best use out of it. So I'd say our mind body process, we have a masterpiece that we don't even know we have. And not only that, we're not interested in it. We're interested in what's out here instead of going in here and realizing all you need to succeed is inside. It's always an inside job. So we have this tremendous capacity potential that can be unlocked. It can be developed. It could be accessed. But it's an inside job. Only you can do it. You can have help and people can encourage us and inspire us and then give us hints, but we have to do it. And to the degree that we're able to unlock the quality of our life, to be able to live fully and creatively, it's gonna be enhanced by the ability of how much we develop and access the greatness within. That's what it comes down to. And so for me, if you everything is fine, you know, it says I think in the Bible it talks about those who thirst and hunger after knowledge. They're the ones to get it. The ones to just say, oh, I'm straight, I'm cool. You're going to hide out in mediocrity or, you know, desperate lives, you know, quiet lives of desperation. And Kierkegaard talks about one of the most common forms of despair is not being yourself. Hmm. So you understand that that's what it's about. And so it's really about making a choice and having people around you and and role models, whether it's Joseph Campbell or Maya Angelou, or, or even, you know, I was listening to Louise Hay. And I remember back in the day when she wrote a book, you know, you can heal yourself. People thought it was controversial because she wasn't really saying you were responsible for your illness, but she was saying that you have a role to play in it. And if you play your role, you can heal yourself. But that's too much because that amount of responsibility, because I'd say we have a system of hideouts. We're not interested in being aware and being mindful because if we are. Now we got to be responsible. And if we're responsible, then we can't just blame and deny. We got to say, I'm responsible. I have a role. And here's the amazing thing about it. It's like we put ourselves in jail. We're the jailer. And so because we put ourselves in jail, we can let ourselves out. We can unlock. We lock mm-hmm. ourselves up. We can unlock.
0: The next piece is from one of my favorite authors, Mitch Albom. He was so generous to come back on the show, and he's so brilliant. And the book that he just wrote that just came out happened to take place during the Holocaust. And so we ended up talking about how does the book that he wrote two years ago that just came out, how does it actually relate to what's happening in the current state of the world? And this is such an important reminder that he shared that we all need to
8: carry with us. I have given some thought to what I'm going to say when i'm asked about the connections between the time that i write about with this book and what's going on now cuz i know that's going to happen you know i'm doing a many weeks of touring and i'm doing a bunch of podcasts and shows and tv shows and things like that and i think what i would say is if you are jewish then and even if you're not you are probably familiar with the phrase never again and it was born out of the holocaust and spoken and promised and uttered on the lips of of the children and of the grandchildren and of the great-grandchildren of the people who survived that awful time to try to ensure that it would never, ever happen again. And if my story coming out at this time gets some attention because of what's going on, if only for the fact that they can read in this book how everything was normal, and how a city that had a majority Jewish population, just like Israel has a majority Jewish population, nonetheless was wiped out in a matter of months because of lies that people believed on the outside and a force that rallied around those lies and became evil, then I will have done my small part to try to keep that phrase, never again, on the lips of people at a time when most of the survivors of that last time are dying or gone. That's the thing that I worry about, you know, if I'm granted by God enough time to live on this earth as, you know, another 20 years or whatever, I'll be living at a time when no one will be left
3: That's right.
8: who actually can remember what really took place during the Holocaust and during World War II. And when no one's around to actually remember, it's very easy to start rewriting history. There's some rewriting of history that's going on right now in the Mideast conversations. And that stuff's even more recent. You know, no, that's not really what happened. That's not really the way it was. That's not really. So when no one is around to say, no, I was there and here's how it was, it's very easy for people to say, oh, the Holocaust was exaggerated. It wasn't a systemic murder of Jews. It was a war. It was Things happened in war. Whatever excuses are made. So I hope that this story in its own way shows the consequences of forgetting and shows the consequences of lying because we can do neither when it comes to that period of time. There was nothing like it in the history of the world, but October 7th had elements of what it was like. And, uh, you know, not on that scale, but that the sheer cold-blooded don't care if it's women, children, babies, doesn't matter. We're terror coming in. And the only reason is because you are of a certain religion that has eerily similar overtones to what took place on a daily basis in the concentration camps and in the attacking of towns that led to those concentration camps. So we're already living proof that never again doesn't always mean that it it's impossible for it to happen. So that's what I hope if people ask me, you know, well, your book, whether you intended it to be or not, which I didn't intend it to be, but it's timely. What's the connection? There's your connection. Read what happened and don't let it happen again.
0: All right, now I want to share a powerful message from one of my closest friends, Bobby Kennedy Jr. He and his wife, Cheryl Hines, who's also a close friend of mine. You're going to hear a clip from them after this. They're just so beautiful, such good hearts, such authentic people, so much humility. And I'm just amazed. Here's what he said about how we can show up
9: and be of service. My dad, about two weeks before he died, he gave me a book and it was a book by Camus. And it was called The Plague. It was about a a city in North Africa that's unnamed that is being ravaged by an illness. They don't, they don't understand It's about a doctor and how he relates to it. And he, he's torn because they don't know how to treat it. And they know that it's contagious. So that if you have contact with somebody who has it, you're highly likely to die. Very, very high infection fatality rate. And that the only way to stay safe is to stay locked up. And the first half of the book is him having a conversation in his head that, you know, his job and his mission in life is to treat people who are ill. And yet there's nothing he can really do to help anybody. He doesn't know what it is. And, you know, he's very likely to die if he goes out and does his profession. But he has this debate with himself. And in the end, he goes out and he consoles people. And that that sacrifice that he makes of doing his duty Brings order to the chaos and meaning to this very, very chaotic universe. And like Father, when he handed me this book, he gave it to me with this particular intensity because a lot of times he'd give me books to read, but he gave me this. And he said, "I want you to read this," and he said it very, very directly. So, in the years after he died, I read that book to his times, trying to decipher exactly what it was that he gave me. What I feel like I know what that is now, and. Camus was an existentialist, and he was kind of a legatee of the Stoics, which were Greek and, to some extent, Roman ideology. And the big hero of the Stoics was Sisyphus. And Sisyphus did an act that caused him to be cursed by the gods to push a stone up the hill for all of eternity. He would get it to the top of the hill, never be able to get it over, and it would always roll back on him. And he'd have to walk down, oftentimes injured, etc., and do it again. But in the minds of the stoic, Sisyphus was a happy man because he put his shoulder to the wheel. He knew what his duty was and he did it. And that is kind of how we contribute to the order of the universe. And, you know, a lot of people have said to me, because I, from taking positions the medical Freedom issues that I've suffered a lot, the loss of a lot of friendships of family members, of the income of status of my capacity to, you know, these political relationships that I had easily made over all of my life. And I've lost almost all of them and all of these things. And people say, oh, that's very hard on you. And I feel like, no, that's not hard on me. It's a privilege to have something that a duty that I'm supposed to do. And what I try to do the way that I try to live my life is I never make predictions and I try to have no expectations because if you don't have expectations, you never get disappointed. The only thing I have control over is my own conduct, is that little piece of real estate inside my own shoes. And, you know, I have to get up every morning and say, reporting to Goody, sir, and go out and push the rock up the hill. And whether I get it over there or not is irrelevant. Whether I win the presidency or not is ultimately irrelevant. I only have control over what I do on a day-to-day basis. The, the outcomes are all in God's hands. I have to have faith in I can feel peaceful and content with it myself, which is ultimately the objective as long as I continue to be of service and just keep doing the next right thing. So oh, if you ask me the legacy that and yeah, I'd say that was one of the important lessons. All right, so here's a piece from
0: my conversation with his wife, Cheryl Hines. She is a very dear friend, and she came over to have this heart-to-heart conversation, and we had so much fun talking about what's new in her life, the business she started with her daughter, and also what it's like to be married to a presidential candidate. I don't think a lot of people know her background, so I wanted to highlight the upbringing that she had because it really shows why she has so much empathy for people who haven't had it the easiest. So let's say this happens and you wind up in D.C. <laughs> you have a new bedroom, <laughs> new front lawn. Um, what would you want to do with that? What would you want to use that platform for?
10: You know, there are several things, but I did a lot of work in schools and public schools and different communities and um, especially underserved communities. And teachers, you know, schools that don't even have working bathrooms and kids that don't have enough to eat. You know, the only time they eat anything is when they're at school. And I just find that to be unacceptable in this country. And I, I think we just need to stop and look at our, our students and our teachers and appreciate them and hear them and
0: Invest in them. I feel like this is so big. And I think this is very singular to you. I think you as first lady, I mean, can you leave what we're saying that? No, it's weird. It's crazy, but it's, <laughs> it's real. Like this is real. Now. That would be so radical because you grew up similar to one of the kids that you just talked about.
4: That's true. People don't know that. No,
10: I was on free lunch when I was in grade school, you know, and I didn't really know. You know, you don't really know when you're a kid. It's like, I know I'm standing in a d- different line with a ticket and I know that the other kids don't have tickets. And so this must be weird. But, you know, that's what we did. And I went through life experiencing public schools, like really not having enough money summer camp or things. Things like that, right. or even if I went on a you know a high school field trip, I had to work at the school because we couldn't afford to give money for the field trip, so I had to like work harder and do stuff to earn it, which was okay, you know it like you're saying, it makes you who you are, but i've seen I've seen it through a different lens, yeah, but when I say different lens, I think the majority of people have had moments like that. They've had years like that. They've moved through it. But I don't know one person who has ever said to me, my life has been great.
0: I've never struggled in any way. That's the secret. We all have the same secret is that nobody knows how much we're carrying. Right. But it is unique in this lane for you to be a person who actually knows what that's like. Yeah. Right. How many first ladies like could say they didn't know what they would eat. Right. They didn't know if there'd be enough in the fridge. Right. Yeah. And I think real leadership is not look at me, but come with me. Yeah. And I've that's been right. there. So empathy is I've been in that well. So I know how to help you. I, yeah. I know your address right? And it's interesting because there's so much of a focus on Bobby, which there deserves to be because he has so much passion and so much he wants to do. And at the same time, as we're sitting here, I think we're in a chapter where women really are meant to have this space to lead. And I feel like there's so much that you innately know about humans and people Which would make you the most compelling, helpful, important woman leader we've ever had, Cheryl.
10: Well, let's see what happens in a year and a half. All
0: right, the next piece is from Thomas Hubble, who is incredible. He and I really were speaking the same language when it comes to consciousness. And I love his approach to dealing with our emotions and healing the world.
11: You said something beautiful before. You said love the other person into life. That's a beautiful sentence. Like I deeply agree with this, is that our openness and our own healing, and sometimes we need spaces for healing because we're really hurt and we need some time that is safe, that we can restore enough to be able to provide that love that you were talking about. But I agree also with you that I see this also in, in our community, when people wake up to a certain extent, then unconscious people are the ones that are more bothersome than conscious people. And even if there there is a truth to that, it's also part of the pitfall of our spiritual practice that we just can be only with people at the word that are conscious right. <laughs> so the others true. serve us. And I'm a, I am ai mean, this started already when I was working for the Red Cross. I'm a very big fan of contributing to our society and giving something. Right And being part of a collective repair process, like the Jewish tradition speaks about the individual tikkun, like our individual repair, and it speaks about the collective tikkun. And so the collective repair that we are all part of needs us. And relationships have such a healing power. When you look at what's relating, I feel you and I feel how you feel me. So I feel you feeling me is the basic building block how nervous systems constantly feel. As you said, we are wired to relate as mammals. We are wired to relate. And the whole attachment process of children is being feeling, being felt. And the more parents can feel their kids and the more we are in relation with our kids, the more the attachment process will work well. I I sometimes bring an example. I say, okay, when my daughter comes to me and says, daddy, daddy, I'm scared. And then I can either say, oh, don't be scared. There is nothing dangerous in the house. So what did I do? I devalued my daughter's emotion. I said, don't be scared. But she is scared already. When I tell her don't be, it's not helpful. And then I give her an intellectual answer when she actually has an emotional request. The other option would be, I turn to her and say, yes, I feel you're scared. Come to me. Mm -hmm. I create an emotional resonance with her. She feels felt by me. I appreciate, I respect her fear, which doesn't devalue her fear. It actually, I create a resonance with her nervous system, with the fear. That helps her to down-regulate. And then I can say, okay, let's have a look what happened. So then I bring leadership into the situation, but not... Before, I felt her emotional space.
6: Exactly.
11: That creates a whole different experience for her of, oh, when I'm afraid, I can connect to my parents and later on to friends and colleagues, and and there will always be somebody that can be there for me when I need somebody. That's part of life, And then it creates a feeling in her, oh, I feel safe. The world's safe. And when I'm scared, I can share it. It's no big issue. And I think if we create more collective systems, and I think also we are facing collective issues like climate change, we have to work differently together globally. And that is a collective process. So what you said about the we need communities, I think that's the future. The future of healing and restoration and global collaboration happens through collective spaces. We have to have them.
0: So as we wrap up this last episode of 2023, I want to share a couple pieces from my workshop of how we as women can stop holding ourselves back and step into our full power and give rise to the whole collective. I can't stand seeing women spend year after year and they're not visible. We have a world to save. We need women with checkbooks. Where's the execution? We just talk a lot about how we want to see things change. What are you doing in your own life? Where's your offer? You should have it written to yourself as a note, as a promise that come January, there is a way for people to pay you for what you do every single day. It's enough with volunteering and doing all the extra stuff at the church and at the school. And then you feel depleted and you don't have a way to underwrite something that you care about. That has to change. That has to change. There are women in countries that don't even have the freedom to even think about that as a choice. And on their behalf, you should be doing that every time someone told you to be a good girl, that is not what they meant. And you know that because that is redundant. You are good. What they meant was don't be powerful.
6: Don't have a voice. Don't receive. Cut yourself off. Be a good girl. Be
0: tameable. How about be powerful? Well, in order to be powerful, you're going to have to come correct with yourself, which means you're going to allow yourself to be rich. You're going to allow yourself to receive all the love in the world, all the self-respect, all the money, all the good friends, or you're not. And every time you see a woman who allows any of that, you're going to praise her. You're going to wish her well. Cause every time you're triggered by her, what you're saying is, why does she get to do that? And I can't have her because you drank the Kool-Aid. That you need to be good. You don't need to be good. You are good. You don't need to be good because you are good. You need to be in truth. You need to walk with fire. You need to be powerful. You need to be turned on. If I unplug an iron or a curling iron or a toaster, it's not powerful. It's unplugged. That's not a good toaster. That's a bad toaster. If I don't charge my Tesla, I don't have a Tesla. If I don't charge my Tesla, it's not a good car. You've been broken. They want to break you. That's what they do. They've been doing that for thousands and thousands of years. That's the oldest thing in the world. And we're so broken that we think we have to be good. So can I be good and receive? Because as soon as I would move towards receiving, I was told to be good. Follow the rules. Don't get out of line. Don't say that. Don't do that. Don't want that. How about choosing to be authentic and lighting a path and trusting yourself? Here's the thing. You ready? That you are good and that that's not up for debate. And so there's no way you won't be good. So you have been taught to question if you can handle power because it might make you not good. You are good. You're the best thing in the world. All right. Well, now I just want to say a giant thank you for another magical year. The fact that you continue to listen week after week, it means just so much to me. And I am so excited that we have another year ahead. There's so many good guests coming up like John kabat and returning guests like Gay Hendricks and Jamie Kern Lima. So make sure that you follow along on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening. And if there's an episode that you love, tell us by leaving a review or you can enter the giveaway for the Nespresso coffee machine. Go to my Instagram at kathy.heller and just by referring a friend, you'll be entered into the giveaway. I love you so much. I hope that you have a beautiful holiday wherever you are. Happy New Year. I'll leave you with a song of mine. And I'll talk to you in 2024. I'm
3: gonna wear my favorite color. I'm gonna say what I need to say. I'm gonna eat dessert for breakfast. I'm gonna know I'll be okay. Cause life's too short to be somebody other than who you are. As long as I'm on this crazy journey, I'm gonna take me far. Cause life is a joy i